You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. Last week we started a, a series on the atonement, and this is going to be part two. Um, as a real quick review, the term atonement, do you know that used to be two words? At one. And about 200 years ago, they mashed it together to call it atone. But it used to be the two words, at one, and that's what it means. It means the word for reconciliation or the unity between two parties. Um, last week we looked at the atonement of God, and we discussed the Bible has multiple ways of describing the atonement, that it talks about ransom, washing or cleansing, and it talks about being freed from slavery, price being paid, and so there's a lot of words and a lot of phrases that, that go into the metaphors for, uh, and so we were looking for an umbrella that kind of covered all of them, sort of a nexus that kind of kept us together. How do they all fit together? And so... Um, we, we kind of went over that and talked about covenant as, a, as that, that umbrella. Um, the other thing we discussed was the inclusion of Judaism in the atonement. So many of the stories of atonement that I've read, and I've read a lot of them now, even before I started this sermon series, it's, it's creation, the fall, then the atonement story seems to leapfrog all the way over to Jesus, and then to the end time. And we're saying that the, the story of, of, the, of the people of God and the God of the people of Israel has to be included. So we're not going to allow any supersessionalism or anti-Judaism come into our discussion of the atonement. We mentioned that the word Torah, that word is extremely difficult to translate. And the, it's the word of God as the manifestation of God's presence on earth. It's the embodiment of God. And so this goes beyond the concept of laws and it carries little in the way of judicial or legal characteristics. It's very, very personal. So again, I want today to look at covenant and see how this allows a place for all of our images. Now, real quick, the term covenant means coming together in agreement Traditionally, they're extremely lopsided. One side does a whole, whole lot. The other side isn't required to do hardly anything, which is why we call it the covenant of marriage. Okay. See, notice all the wives laugh at that one. So, <laughs> so anyway. But God entered into quite a few of these with, with, uh, with Israel. But we really want to talk about the new covenant, which is, encompasses really the entire New Testament. And... I, I want to really, the reason I really want to go over it, he did so many with Israel, and they form a loose pattern of all the covenants. And so I want to briefly the, go over the, the evolution of the theology of Judaism as we see it in the Bible. Because the early covenants with Moses were about the presence of God. God saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. Or say, I will dwell with you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. It was always about the dwelling and the relationship of God and people. And Torah was a gift of grace and not a penalty system. We mentioned last week that the sacrificial system was a response to what God had done or was going to do. 
It was not an act to cause it. So the sacrifice, let's use a sacrifice of uh, blessing. They didn't have the sacrifice and then wait for a blessing. They were doing the sacrifice because of the blessing of God. So we oftentimes have that backwards. By the time of Christ, though, things had changed. The people no longer were a kingdom. They had become a vassal state of Rome. Various sects of sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Judaism had developed, and Pharisee was the more dominant. The additions to the law by rabbi and the emphasis on Sabbath became their national religious distinction. So they, dis they separated themselves by right of sa Sabbath, not so much circumcision. The other development was they, they now took it upon themselves to believe they were a nation of the elect by birthright as Jews. So it created a complication of how to stay in, which made Torah very legal. So if you broke in Torah, you're out. If you keep Torah, you're in. And so with this, grace and relationship faded. It became very, very legal of how to stay in or, or, get, or else you'd be kicked out. I want us to understand, though, Torah did not change. Torah is not at fault. It's still the word of God. So we, we can't misinterpret Torah by viewing how the Jews corrupted it and then say it was all about law and, and those kind of things. So, so what again, going back, the grace of God was overwhelmed by the requirements of obedience to the Torah. And so that's what took away the relationship. It was all about obedience to Torah. By the way, you know, Paul's writings are very, very, very similar to Torah. Paul kind of does the same thing. Being a child of God, being in Christ, looks like this. Being, and if you look like that, you need correction. And you see it in a lot of his books. Early on, he tells a problem and it goes through. That doesn't mean we're works-based anymore. See, see, Paul had a real high value of Torah. He saw it with a very high view. And so I'm putting a lot of emphasis on this because if we're going to embrace the new covenant, we need to have a proper perspective of how the covenants operate and how they're very, very personal. Because we're not going to view this against the old covenants, but through the old covenants. And so that way, our perspective doesn't get distorted. And it's really important to understand the source of a divine covenant. That is a covenant made from God. Divine covenants have their source in the loving heart of God. God conceives the covenant. He then announces it. He then confirms it. And then he carries it through to fulfillment. And the motive is always his perfect love. So if we look at the new covenant with God, we see all those steps. It was conceived in the Garden of Eden. And if you read uh, Genesis 3, it says, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and their seed. He will crush your head and, and you will strike his heel. 
That was the moment he said, this isn't over. And he was, he was, this was where we see the covenant begin. Then he announces it. He conceives it there, but he announces it in Bethlehem. And then we see that in Luke 2. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Then it's confirmed at the Last Supper, and that's Mark 14. When, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. And of course, then he carried it through at the cross. Just the one verse we need is John 19.30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, the love of God has been unwavering from Eden to the present. The blood of the cross seals the covenant. That's the covenantal seal. And it seals a covenant of forgiveness, of restoration, of perpetuation, not the other way around. It doesn't, the, the cross does not cause the forgiveness and restoration. It seals the covenant. And so the Father is not holding back until Jesus dies. In other words, the Father does not have to be conditioned to be merciful by the obedience and satisfaction of the Son. I think this is what Jesus was talking about in John 3, 16, 17. When he's talking about his Father, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Believing in him is how we bind ourselves to the covenant. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God so loved the world. These were spoken before the cross happened. Jesus is telling us that's why he came. That's why he became a human being. So Christmas is very, very different. It's not that he showed up so he can die on the cross. And those words were completely about the Father. It's funny, I hear, I, I've used this as a trivia question when I used to do uh, youth. I'd read that and go, who's that about? Every single one of them said Jesus. Almost none of them knew that was about the Father. Because we have this perception of the Father that's different than the Son. And so oftentimes we don't think the Father loves us until the Son straightens things out. And so but the Father has always loved us. You know, one of the other metaphors that, they use, that we use under the covenant is it's called the kinsman, K-I-N-S-M-A-N. And in those days, if you were in financial trouble or legal trouble, you'd call a family member. And that family member could come in and either pay the debt or pay the fine. And without this person, you may have to sell yourself or your whole family into slavery. Or you'd lose all your land or both. 
And others could be added into this family by marriage, by adoption. But, and so sometimes your kinsman would be an in-law. And, but, so there were other ways to extend your family. Because it's with God, it's called a divine kinsman. And God's relationship with Israel in Egypt and then Sinai was this type of a kinsman covenant. And with a real special on family, and it, essentially the father-son uh, relationship. Matter of fact, in Exodus 4, Exodus 4, he tells Moses, he goes, tell the Pharaoh... This is what the Lord said. Israel is my firstborn son. He's saying, don't mess. This is my kid. Okay? The kinsman, he will lead in battle. He redeems from slavery. He loves his family. He establishes inheritance. He, he, he goes and provides and he protects them. That's the role of the divine kinsman. And so we see at Passover in the Passover and the Sinai covenants, um, at the burning bush, going back to the, the announcements and those things of the covenant, he tells Moses there what he's going to do. In Exodus 3, he says, I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and precious and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm coming to take them out. I'm going to free them from slavery, the divine kinsman. Then he confirms it again with Moses while he's in Egypt. And, he's and he tells him what to say. He's telling Moses, I've also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I don't think there's any question about what's going on there. So then we know the rest of the story. God vanquishes the false gods of Egypt, and Pharaoh releases his people, kind of changes his mind, so they have to go ahead and go through the Red Sea. But how does the divine kinsman fit into the new, the, the, uh, the new covenant? I'm going to look at one real quick story, and that's the prodigal son. In, in this story, the father seems to exhibit reckless, wasteful extravagance of love, mercy, and grace. The kinsman father requires no outside influence to extend his mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment before the son speaks. The son's penitence and humble petition seals the restored relationship. He's returned to his full position with the signs of a new coat, a ring of authority, new shoes. The other son, the one that seems to insist on some form of judgment, exhibits the normal human response. That's what all the Jews hearing this story were thinking in their mind. And, but the father speaks with his heart 
and says, why mercy for this wasteful son? Why mercy must trump judgment? Yeah, I pick up in Luke 15, 28. It says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, then call him brother, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father says, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's the reason for mercy. We were dead, but he wants them made alive. Amazing. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, one of my favorite, if you had to say, if you, if you could only have one page out of your Bible and go to a deserted island, it'd be this page. Chapter 1 of Ephesians is the divine kinsman covenant. It explains it perfectly. From We're going to start it. Uh, let's start with verse 3. I'm going, to, I'm going to read a little bit of this one. So, all right. It starts out from verse 3. Praise to, God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's starting right out with that reckless, that ridiculous, reckless love and giving. Then it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So we're seeing that this covenant's been made a long, long time ago, before the world began. And it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance to his pleasure and will. He, the adoption into the family of the divine kinsman. So that's how we come under the coverage of the divine kinsman is through adoption. And then it says, uh, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to, to the grace of his, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He extends his great favor, wiping out our debt and not transferring our debt. That's what grace is. It's free. It's not, it doesn't need to be repaid. This is substantial. So this is not like Uncle Bob coming to help you out. And then at Thanksgiving on about that 10 grand, come on, when, when am I starting to see some? The divine kinsman doesn't ask for it back. And so this is really, really a fundamental thing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. He personally sealed the covenant with his own blood, clearing our debt, forgiving all wrongdoing. And we have all of this up to the level of God's assets. That's what this is saying. It's that in accordance with the riches of God. That's saying up to. God has unlimited resources, and so he says, that's what we have through him. There is no limit. 
If you said, how, how, what's the limit for Chuck? I've got limits. But God doesn't. Do you understand that we are people that have unlimited resources? We don't, we're never, you know, when Jesus said, you think you're poor, but you're rich, you have all the unlimited resources of God. And verse 8, and then he, uh, the, the, the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That's, I mean, then it says, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. He wants us to have a deep understanding and wisdom when you know how to use it. And he's letting us in on all of his secrets and all his will because we're family. He's not taking this as a distant third party. He's saying, I'm not just going to tell you why I am. I'm going to tell you who I am and what I'm all about and what my will is so you can walk in it. I just think it's, it's stunning when you think about this. It says, according to, you know, verse 9, uh, mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. He has assigned Jesus Christ to be the mediator of this covenant for eternity. He's saying what Jesus says goes. That, the, that God made man that rose and sits at the right hand of the Father is the mediator of this eternal covenant. And we have to understand that. That we don't have a mediator like a high priest that dies and a new one comes in. We don't, it's not like a political party where who gets elected in every four years. We don't know what the government's doing. We have a consistent God made man as our mediator representing us in the covenant. This is stunning. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plans of him who works out everything and conforming with the purpose of his will. Through Christ, we're co-heirs. Through Christ, we're created with a plan, and now we're expected to walk in it. In order that we, who, are, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, when you believed you are marked with him, in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. By our acceptance into this covenant, by believing in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, as our engagement ring. That's another word for that deposit, is an engagement ring. And we share in the sealing of this covenant by the blood of Christ. And then verse 14 says, says, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We're given the Holy Spirit as a marital pledge that we are God's and we have been redeemed to be his for his glory. He is our God and we are his people, his family. That's a powerful, powerful little section there. But I guess the other last question I have is how does the divine kinsman relate to sin and evil? As I, as I mentioned, one of the roles of the kinsman is to lead in battle. And peop the people are, are, to are to participate 
engage the enemy exactly as he instructs. God gave his son to us to become human, to destroy the works of the, of the devil. That came out of 1 John 3.8. By becoming human, he represents all of mankind in the battle, as Moses did to Pharaoh. And in his death and subsequent resurrection, Jesus defeats the greatest enemy of all, and that's death. He defeats the evil one. And so as humans in Christ, humanity enters into the death and resurrection and the ascension to the heavenly realms, and we're restored to our true form, the image and likeness of God. The victory of Christ establishes the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry, the kingdom of God on earth. Supplanting the kingdom of darkness that, as ruler of the earth. And this explains in part why there's evil still exists. Because as ruler, God does not insist on, subject, on subjecting all of the populace. He has free will. And so he gives total freedom, whether you want to choose Christ our Lord and receive the blessings of the covenant, or to reject it and subject yourself under the rule of the Satan, under the rule of the evil one. But don't you miss this. That decision does not change God's love and forgiveness, and he never stops pursuing, and has, as one of our covenantal promises, assigned us to partner with him and make disciples of all men. Amen. That is, we are to join in his pursuit. Amen. That's part of our covenantal agreement. So when you look at this covenant, you can see and feel the bond of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to each of us as sons and daughters to the Father. We're bond, we bond to Christ as brothers and sisters to the Son. And we become the indwelling place for the Holy Spirit. A bond that didn't begin when we, when we said yes. It's a bond that began way, way back centuries ago. Because God loved us and had already forgiven us. We had, we had just not entered into the covenant relationship with him to receive it. You know, as we just read in Ephesians, Jesus is the mediator and administrator of this family bond for eternity. And he's seeing how he can lavish us with more and more blessings and benefits from the riches of the glory of the Father. Like the Israelites leaving Egypt, he's basically saying, how much can you guys carry? If you remember when the Egyptians, they all gave them their gold. And, and so it was only limited by how much they could carry. So Jesus is sitting in, as mediator saying, how much can you carry as you come out of the bonds of, of slavery to sin, slavery to whatever we're bound to? I mean, just think, it's, it's, it's like when you're praying and, and God answers the phone saying, I was just thinking about you. And he actually meant it. And he's saying, I'm so glad you called. And then, he, then we talk to him on the phone and we tell him about, you know, about things are going good. And then we tell him about what, what troubles us. And it's family that's coming to the aid to console us. It's family that's coming to our aid. And you know what? It's family that starts a feud with anyone opposed to us. A good old-fashioned family feud 
And we got the real big brother. So it also changes how I look at communion. You know, when I take communion, it's a renewal of our vows of the new covenant. Almost like a renewal of your marriage vows. Because it's a living and present reality that began way back at the Old Supper, or at the Last Supper. We're not memorializing a covenant relationship, but we're celebrating the living Christ who's mediating an active covenant with the Father. For you ex-Catholics, that's why it was called the celebration of the Mass. The entire service was to celebrate communion. We called it the celebration of the Mass. It's not a memorial service. We celebrate the body of the incarnation. We, we celebrate the blood that sealed the covenant. And we proclaim our roles in the covenant and renew our faith and our belief right there in his presence at the table. You know, I have found that relating to Christ as covenant opened so many more doors to me. I've only touched on a few more. I wish I could spend time on the incarnation, just what that means. Because for him, that means that the engagement of covenant at Christmas is so different than Christ is born, give me a gift, and, and he's born so he can die at Easter. It's, it's to release the kingdom, to defeat the enemy. And we see him time after time doing that. We see... And, that's, and then he shows his righteousness by fulfilling the, the old covenant, fulfilling Torah, which makes him the only one that could go head to head and have war with Satan. Because each and every one of us would have some blame, some shame that, that Satan could beat us and defeat us in a head to head battle. But he doesn't have that with Christ because Christ never failed. It's an amazing story. And it all fits under the concept of covenant. Here's what we're going to do. Those of you at home, pay attention. This is where you look up. We're going to kind of stand here today, and we're going to kind of proclaim. This is my own version of the Apostles' Creed, if you will. But it's, it's Colossians 2, 9 through 15. And let's just stand and read that and declare the, the goodness of what, what Jesus has done. I'm using, on this case, the uh, Passion Translation. So those of you at home who are looking at your King James and you can't figure it out, that's probably why. For he is the complete fullness of deity living in human form. He is our own completeness is now found in him. We are completely filled with God as Christ's fullness overflows within us. He is the head of every kingdom and authority in the universe. Through our union with him, we have experienced circumcision of the heart. All the guilt and power of sin has been cut away and is now extinct because of what Christ, the appointed one, has accomplished for us. For we've been buried with him into his death. Our baptism into death also means we were raised with him when we believed in God's resurrection power, the power that raised him from the death realm. This realm of death describes our former state. 
For we were held in sin's grasp, but now we've been resurrected out of that realm of death, never to return, for we are forever alive and forgiven all our sins. He, he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest record that stood to indict us. He erased it all. Our sins, our stained souls, he deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto this cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. When Jesus came spectacle of all the powers and principalities, stripping away from them every weapon, all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. Amen. When Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he used the, ter the term tetelestia, or tetelestia. That's an accounting term. And, it and that's what we stamped on an invoice of debt. So when he said it's done, he means it was paid. And so when we read this, it says every debt, every legal right that anyone has against us, we've bro broken the legal right of the evil one to have an attachment to us. The only way that that can be changed is if we restore that legal right. So those of us who somehow slip into different things, and we wonder why it won't go away, it's because we've given permission now that was taken away at the cross. So if you have something in your heart that you need forgiveness for, this is a good time to ask the Lord for it. Ask the Lord to cleanse you of any of those kind of things. If you have a, if you have a, a sin that just doesn't seem to want to go away, even in, instead of white knuckling it, why don't you give a call to the divine kinsman, let him start a little family feud on your behalf. And that always, it's not always easy. Sometimes it takes time. But it does happen. I stand before you as a chain-smoking, alcoholic car guy that God has transformed that I've done very little in. My wife takes some of the credit because she threatened me if I didn't go to church with her. But the Holy Spirit's a powerful, powerful spirit. It's God. If you don't think that anything that you're not comfortable with can't be erased, God's here. If anyone's watching this and you think, oh, you really don't know my history, God does. Do you realize that long before Jesus died on the cross, he already forgave you? He already said, you're my child. Would you come back into family? And all you have to say is yes to Jesus. He'll, take, he'll figure out the rest. You say, well, don't I have to give up all this stuff? You know, that was all my hesitation. What I had to give up? What I had to give up? And God will never, ever ask you to give up anything that's really good for you. So, 
I know some people, they can have a beer, stop, enjoy it. That's not me. So he's not taking it away from everybody. He's personalizing your joy. He personalizes how everything in your life fits best in your life. That's why he had to go all the way to Korea to find me a wife. <laughs> so I just want to, everyone here that needs prayer, we have chairs on either side. We'll, we'll make sure you get prayer. I think it's a good day today. I think that when we see the, the depth of the relationship of Christ that we have with him, that he's invited us into, I think that brings us more aware of really the personal nature of this. We don't talk about God. We talk to him. I, I can tell when one of you are talking about one of your relatives. Because the look on your face is someone that's a personal connection. And if, you, and if you've been a Christian a long time even, and you don't feel like you have a real personal connection, pick up the phone on your knees. Spend time. Make appointments. I think Michelle talks about this a lot. Make appointments with God. Make a date with God. Spend time with him. And, I've, um, and we've talked about this in our Bible study a lot, and there have been so many different examples. When you're in the will of God and walking in his will, it's stunning how much time there is in a day. Stunning. And I've heard a witness where someone had, was doing work that literally took four hours that got accomplished in like 30 minutes. And, I've, and I also know someone who feel, they said time stopped while they were doing something. I'm not just talking about the Bible. I'm talking about people I know. So it's amazing. He'll also help you prioritize your time. So suddenly you'll find that Guess what? It's time to get in an argument on Facebook for the next three hours. It kind of takes that away from you. Does it mean he takes away your fun? Does it mean he takes away football games? No, no he gives us a TiVo. <laughs> but, but uh, he, I mean, he understands. He understands you. Some of you couldn't care less about a football game. So he'll, he'll work around. But what you love. Some of us would rather go to a football game. Some would rather go to a park. Some would rather do both. So just to understand that God really, really is caring for you. He really, really loves you. And he's always loved you. You didn't make a decision to find him. He already, he's been around. All you got to do is just say yes to him. You've seen it around you. All of us have seen the, the beauty of God around us. I mean, I just heard someone talk about different birds. You know, one of the members of the church, they said, she puts on Facebook all these pictures of birds. Birds I've never seen before. It's just stunning. Just it's an amazing world that he made. So let's just close. I just want to say, Father, we just give you the glory. I didn't do a single thing. All I had to do was look up and you said, will you say yes? And I said yes. And the next thing I know, you got me going to meetings. Because you, your power, your will is so powerful, so incredible. You won't do anything that we won't do. That we, if we disagree with something, you're not going to force us. 
Boy, you love us so much that you won't stop pursuing. You won't stop giving us the signals. You won't stop letting us see the things. So in a day like today, where we've got this coronavirus, we have all these unrest, we have all these different things, let us, Lord, see the beauty that you have in each, every one of your creations. The person that we see that's being arrested, and it's just something horrible, that's a child of God that's been under the influence of an evil one. We really have to understand how to love that kind of a person. That when someone says something we think is outrageous, that's someone that was born in the image and likeness of God, that Jesus loves dearly and paid an incredible price for his opportunity to come to him. So I'm just asking you, let's be totally aware of this enormous gift that he's given us and that he's also given to everyone around you. That we don't live on an island. God did not tell us to live on an island. He said, go out and, and to make disciples of everyone. Go out and see people. Go out and share the good news. Because we really have good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.